what's your fascination with Cheech and Chong? I don't know. (laughs) Just heard a lot of them as a kid. Friday, June 2nd, 2017. This is David Colosi at Clocktower Radio, clocktower.org. Today I'm with Jeremy Sigler, poet extraordinaire. You have four books out, at least four poetry books. Two and Two, Mallet Eyes, Crackpot Poet, ABC Book. Yeah. And now you have My Vibe, mm-hmm. the newest collection out right. from Spoonville. Right. And you do mention Cheech and Chong in there. The only reason I brought them up was because we're sitting here doing a radio right. show. And yeah, like, yeah. I think of them as, as doing great sort of sound work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's when radio was yeah. like a really big thing. and Fire yeah. Theater, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm really also really interested in the guy who produced them. He was one of the guys who organized the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, really? And he put out that film called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Which never made it. It was taken and stuck in a vault right. somewhere. It remains um, there. Yeah, in my vibe, you actually mentioned you and John Yao are sort of these Cheech and Chong characters right. <laughs> eating fried chicken. Right. We're on the road <laughs> on your commute. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I had. It's a true story. Yeah, actually, I really did steal a Duchamp from Roy yeah. Rogers. <laughs> After they stole it from a museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we never we never figured out where where it was from or who produced it. Yeah, but I guess John, being uh, a kind of not only an art historian but someone who's really on top of mm-hmm. you know, really a, he's a collector. Yeah, you know, and he was pretty pretty sure that it came from some. You know, high up source somewhere. So it wasn't like a poster of a coffee. Well, I was just like, it's a poster. Oh, someone made the, you know, like back in the 60s, must have made the the chocolate grinder into a poster. John, I think, thought, okay, this must have been a special French edition from, you know, 1920 (laughs) or something. I don't know. So where is it now? Actually, I don't know when he did the chocolate grinder. The piece that you commandeered from the. I have no idea. I don't know what happened to it. I thought you were rescuing it. <laughs> I think maybe John stole it from me. Oh, okay. Well, well that's fitting. It's he did. He did really want it. He was like really anxious to try to work out with me a kind of 
deal where like I would have it one year and he could <laughs> right. have it. I'm like, I'm not, you're not going to get it at all. I'm yeah. the one who stole this thing. Right. Well, you didn't steal it. You went in and spoke to the no, manager and they it. were happy to give it to you according to the, well, the what, true what story in my Well, what constitutes stealing? <laughs> I, I went in and pretended to right. be this uh, kind of authority who was going to, I mean, I, I basically abducted it is right. what I did. You showed him your Maryland Institute College of yeah. ID. And right, right. He was like, okay. He, like, he was thinking, I'm going to have to, you know, listen to this man. It's like, it, right. I really, it was like I was the FBI. I was like the FBI of art um, abductions. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he went and uh, he, he got someone, I guess like the, the custodial engineer or mm-hmm. whatever um, to go and get it down off the wall, which yeah. wasn't a matter of just taking it like with two hands and hooks or taking yeah. it off the hook. It, it literally, it literally had been caulked to the wall <laughs> and like he had to get out a mat knife and like cut it <laughs> by like, you know, just taking the knife around the outer edge yeah. of the frame. So when I had it in my car and we were headed, heading down to Baltimore, I really felt like I had stolen a artwork from a yeah. museum or something. And this was at like Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. They didn't, you know, they the didn't orange know they trays. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know. And they still don't have They never got it back either. Yeah. They probably didn't want it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. They certainly didn't. I mean, it was an interesting aesthetic discussion because the question was, well, what did they see in it? Uh-huh. And it was like clearly it didn't quite fit in with their yeah. their decor. Right. So but it, it said something about Duchamp because I mean it was really an engineering type drawing. Mm-hmm. I mean it was like Duchamp when he was very influenced by engineering. You know, it's also sort of futurist. Yeah. And it's sort of like a cyborg kind of idea. It's certainly not old fashioned. Yeah, so, yeah. And yet they're like country kitchen aesthetic. Right, right. Like it was supposed to somehow create, um, you know, like d- a dessert vibe. Right. You know, like the chocolate. Home. Yeah, the home. <laughs> it's like, let's grind some chocolate and make a make brownies or yeah. something. I don't know. I have no idea <laughs> I don't even what I'm talking they, about. I don't even know if they have brownies on the menu there. Probably um, not. Yeah. But so in this book, <laughs> in my vibe, there's a lot of uh, very personal, very narrative True stories, embellished stories. I don't know. Are they across the board? Uh, They're just I, like I consider them distorted. I don't use the word embellished yeah. because sometimes it's more about um, the reverse of uh-huh. like taking the the luster or the shine away. Yeah, yeah. you know, and making it actually less than what it was. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's distorted one way. And other times it's distorted in another way. They're they're sort of like the things that happen to me that I decide are going to sort of be used as material in a poem eventually get kind of stretched and turned into something else, mm-hmm. which I feel like that's the process of eventually kind of discovering the the piece. Yeah. Discovering what it how I want it to work or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Like if it's supposed to be funny, if I realize that it's funny and it's cracking me up, I may then try to see what happens if it makes if I make it more funny, mm-hmm. or if I actually play with the material 
-hmm. Usually it doesn't come so fast. You know, usually it's trial and error until I, it goes through numerous iterations and then eventually I kind of settle down with it. So in this book, like compared to the previous ones, I mean, this book is really personal. There's a lot of sharing, <laughs> you know, of personal bits that, that these days everyone does on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. What's or whatever. That? Yeah, I know. You don't have any social media presence. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that in the this book. This is my own Twitter. I think it's like Twitter. I think I tried to have a Facebook account for yeah. a little while, and I, I sort of came out with the typical approach, which was like collecting friends, uh-huh. you know, and I, I think I was up to about 80 friends yeah. and I thought, wow, this is maxed out. I can't. I, <laughs> and then I just saw it as like a, a giant cocktail party. And eventually I was like, I don't want all these people at this party. They, they shouldn't be mingling. <laughs> like this group should not be mingling with that group. Right. And then I got really psyched out by the whole thing. Yeah. So I defriended everyone. Yeah. Uh, on one one bad day, right. you know, and then I was down to zero friends, uh-huh. and I and for a while it just stayed that way. And then someone contacted me after that, so uh-huh. I said, "Okay, sure, you can <laughs> you can be my friend." And that and then it was creepy because that person realized they were my only friend <laughs> and was not. And I ran into her. Uh, she used to be the uh, editor at the Rail, at the Brooklyn Rail, mm-hmm. and I ran into her, and she's like, why am I your only friend? And we weren't even really close friends, you know, in real life. We were just sort of acquaintances. She's like, why am I your only friend on Facebook? Yeah. It's really creepy, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's when I realized, because someone asked me to write on that subject, and I wrote a piece that was sort of about, oh, it's actually in the book, I think. It's about my monogamous <clears throat> Facebook, or my, yeah. uh, I'm a, I'm, I considered myself a serial what is it called? A serial monogamous? Sure. Yeah, like someone, <laughs> yeah, yeah. someone who basically yeah, it just goes practi- from one yeah, yeah, who only relationship yeah. to another monogamous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But serially, quickly, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. or like so, like she she lasted a few days. Yeah, as your only or a friend. few months, a yeah. few months, and then someone is currently my only friend. Yeah, and I'm like sort of can't wait to like replace them. Yeah, well, because I remember first it's when like you- in that Fassbender film, the, the Berlin Alexanderplatz, the big dilemma is how to get rid of the previous friend. <laughs> friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it's you first, rude. when you first open your Facebook account, I remember you only friended people. You didn't post anything. You were just kind of accumulating friends. <laughs> it's like, what's Jeremy doing? Really? I, I see, I didn't so. give it much thought. Yeah, I don't remember you posting I think anything. I think, though, that it's uh, embarrassing to post. It's really, I feel too out there. Okay, so then yeah. what about this book? That's what I'm sort of saying. It's right. Like, yeah. I mean, in poetry and fiction writing and memoir has done that for a long time, you know, sort of expose these things. They're made literary, and actually a lot of people in, in social media make it literary. It's like a different persona. Well, I, I think, you know, part of my <laughs> feeling is, you know, that the literary, the goal of putting something out in the world, in print, or as a work of art. There's sort of a um, another vision or consideration about what it is that you're doing or what it is that you're leaving out there. And you kind of build up this thicker skin around that thing, and, and you develop a kind of detachment from it, even though it's painfully personal and embarrassing. On the other hand, 
someone like Kafka is interesting because he did, in fact, instruct someone. I can't remember who, but someone. Max Brood. So, who like was instructed. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Who never, obviously yeah. never did it. But I, I, I think there's some part of me that would probably go down that line. Wanna, at some point, I'm going to wake up and want to take it all back, you mm-hmm. know, and not have anything out in the world. And I have experienced that feeling. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of a schism. You know, it's like the, the one that got away. Mm-hmm. The, the day that I wake up and try to go around and buy all of right. my books and back and find them <clears throat> one by one and get obsessed with that, I probably will embark on that and it'll peter out after maybe I've found like three books right. and the rest of them <laughs> will be out there somewhere and I won't yeah. be able to get them back. Yeah. So. And one of the poems in the book, you referred to both the social media thing and what you're talking about now kind of as this, uh, you know, it's like when you go into a campsite and you don't leave anything behind, you know, you come right. in, you bring all your stuff, you do all this stuff and then you leave and there's no trace of you. Right. It's supposed to be like the ethics of good, good um, camping or good hiking that you that the next hiker who comes down the path doesn't see any traces of the yeah. last person that was there. Yeah. And I think that uh, um, technically, as a culture, we should all be thinking that way. But somehow it's gotten to be quite the opposite. So mm-hmm. like we just leave a mess everywhere we go. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose... Some part of me is um, in denial that this book adds to that mm-hmm. big heap of cultural, <laughs> you know, garbage. Yeah, and it's just another book, not another yeah. one of the the millions of books that are just stacked up, forming a kind of landfill of right. verb verbiage. Yeah, but really, I think I've convinced myself as a sort of form of denial that the book is not a part of that and mm-hmm. that there's some way in which it's it's clean or it yeah. has some kind of force field around it that yeah. keeps it from becoming contaminated by the everyday. Right. Yeah, I mean, as poetry, it has a pretty tiny footprint. Well, my, yeah. I mean, even the poems themselves are, by comparison to my previous work, really full of stuff of... Language. I mean, it's prose for one, so there's more words. But I don't think of them as nearly as reductive and as, um, you know, in terms of this idea of a small footprint. I mean, my mm-hmm. my other poems um, from the past I considered really, truly as, as reduced as yeah, they could possibly totally. <laughs> be before there'd be nothing, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. So um, they feel unwieldy to me they feel really trashy and These dirty ones. yeah like yeah, yeah. a big exploded yeah me you know, yeah no, they're totally different just <laughs> yeah. in what they yeah and what they explode and still they're really short i mean there's maybe the longest ones maybe three or four pages um but mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. what happens in there and the amount of words and like your other poems it's really like maybe five words say it all <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's all in there mm-hmm. yeah well, the, this, you know, the more I've talked about that dichotomy, the, mm-hmm. I've come up with some terms for it. And yeah. one, one would be this kind of introspection versus extrospection. I don't even yeah. think extrospection is a word. And then introversion versus extroversion. So, yeah. so what, I, what I determined was my old work, 
or it's not that old because it, it's still going. Yeah, so yeah. now I sort of have two modes or two styles of working. So one is introspective and the other is extroverted. Mm-hmm. And these My Vibe poems are, I consider, extroverted. They're social, they're interactive, and, and in a way they are feeding back on their own social phenomenon, you know? Mm-hmm. Because really, like, half the poems are about what happened to me while I was embarking in this social endeavor of being this allegorical poet figure with yeah. this out there in the world. So so they're very um, expansive in that mm-hmm. way, whereas the introspective poems, which I do continue consider an ongoing investigation, really are very... Um, you know, whatever, my, me, myself, and I, yeah. you know, I don't think they, they thrive on even experience. They yeah. really, they thrive on, on this kind of imagination landscape inside my own head. Yeah. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think I have to be interacting with anyone to write those poems. I don't yeah. think I have to have any muse or, you know, maybe just, uh, maybe, maybe a drink or something, right. you know? Yeah. I would have, you know, maybe a nice bar yeah. just to, you know, sit at yeah. and work. But, but ultimately, I want to, I want to, I think I'm going to try to get back to that place for a while mm-hmm. because these extroverted poems kind of took it all out of me. Yeah. I mean, I feel like over the last 10 years that I've been working on this book, I've gotten myself really into a lot of trouble and I feel like, you know, I've been sort of burning the candle at both ends, thinking it's all at, it's all going into the work. It's yeah. all part of the work. So that um, sort of Oscar Wilde idea that that art reflecting life—that somehow life reflects art. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like my life, my life became more like the poems in order for the poems to then be written. Oh right, right. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like oh, my life I had, had to imitate this vision of yeah. like being kind of excessive in order to actually come up with the material. Right. So it wasn't like oh, this poem came from this experience. It's like this experience became because it needs to be a poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like willing, willing yourself to live a certain way so that you can get the the work that need, yeah. you want. Yeah. Or so that your work will come out being shaped. Yeah. In that way, and as you sort of you're sort of driven to do that. Yeah. You know, so now I'm sort of thinking, all right, enough, enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's sort of excessive. Yeah. One, two, one, two, three. Oh, well, let's don't blow it. Take a deeper mm-hmm. breath. No, I just changed it a beat too soon. Better. Here we go. One, two, one, two, three. Hey, what's that bad note, man? Uh, get on it. Good note. Somebody hit a bad note. It's good. Forty-nine. Oh, come what on. What's these bullshit? One, two, one, two, three. Uh, Take a minute yeah, to say yeah. this is David Colosi. I'm talking to Jeremy Sigler on Clock Tower Radio, clocktower.org. And we're talking about his new book, My Vibe. Um, and I'm embarrassed to be having this conversation. No, you're and not. I'm going to see if I can 
delete it right now. You can't. It won't be deleted. <laughs> um, but what we were, you were saying earlier about that thing, about clearing the campsite so that there's no sign of you, another poem in the book is mm-hmm. about writing in invisible ink so that a oh. hundred years from now it'll appear. <laughs> so that's right. kind of like a... It's the opposite. the campsite. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, instead of... Well, ultimately, either way, I think that's what I'm saying is that the writer is his own can can be his own worst enemy. Yeah. Uh, in that, there's that self censoring mechanism where where you go, oh my god, you know, I have to, I have to take either responsibility for this, or this is going to get me into trouble, or I've I've been too honest, I've mm-hmm. uh, you know confessed something, God right. forbid, and then um, you realize, but. No one's listening anyway, yeah. and and like like I, I I interviewed Peter Saul, the painter, uh-huh. you know, yeah. and he said, I, I didn't realize how significant it was when he said it, but but now that I reflect on it more, I realize it was very significant. Which he sort of he sort of said, I started making work like this because no one was paying attention mm-hmm. to any like there was no way to define myself. He said. So I just started like throwing in all of the stuff yeah. into my work that would get people's attention. And I don't think I've done that. And that hasn't been my goal. Right. But I thought it was fascinating the way he said that. Because I was convinced that this was who he was, that he was a, literally a madman. Right. You know, and, then, and, he, and, and really just a weird, yeah. crazy lunatic. And I realized when I met him, he was so totally normal yeah. in, in, in every way I would define as normal. You know, just like kind of yeah. not like his paintings. Yeah. You want to split this chocolate chip cookie? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of normal. <laughs> like he wasn't creepy. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I realized that. And then so when he said that, it was as if he was so tired of being thought of as just average or like mm-hmm. just like everybody else. Yeah. That was his way of revolting yeah. and getting and getting seen and standing out. So that's not really my idea, but it, it makes sense uh-huh. that you would that, that someone would try that as like a sort of um, approach. Yeah, like, like how do you stand out? Well, you know, you 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 act really weird yeah. if you want people to pay yeah. attention to you. Yeah. So I'm not really into that, but I can't figure out what what even how did I even get on that subject. We were talking about the 100 years. Oh, yeah, right. Ink. Well, the, and yeah. the self-censoring thing. If you, if you <laughs> censor yourself, right, you can wind up just creating this bland thing mm-hmm. and that, that no one cares about. And you realize that if you can somehow get over yourself and, mm-hmm. and let the things exist in your work that are the most embarrassing to you or in some way personal, that those really wind up becoming the portals for other people into your work. Mm-hmm. And so if you cover those up, you really do yourself a disservice. Yeah. So I think I'm trying to get past, I'm trying to get to the point where I can just sort of live with that mm-hmm. and accept it, that it's, it sometimes is not who I really want to be. Would you say that with self-censoring on one side and then this desire to be strange, to stand out, whatever... In a way, the motivation is the same. Like if you're being strange, not because you're strange, but so you'll get noticed, it's sort of like it's kind of guided by the audience in both both directions, like to self-censor and to just, well, I'm going to do this so people get no- people notice me. Um, 
where it sounds like what you ended by saying was just kind of getting to, you know, whatever it is that you're doing and just focusing on that and, you know, making it strange, but not in order to get attention for the day. On, right. You know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I have like a lot of confidence, let's say, if I'm writing something and it's cracking me up and I'm happy that to be doing it and I feel this real sense of confidence and authority and mm-hmm. um, boldness. Mm-hmm. And then within a certain amount of time, I'm guaranteed to do about like a 180 and to suddenly lose all confidence to the point where I'm like, not only is this not working and is this not good, but it's bad and it should be erased, right. you know? And, yeah. and so what I've come to realize is that if I can somehow push through that, mm-hmm. um, I'll usually, I won't necessarily come back to the first idea, you know, but I'll get somewhere closer to where I was originally. Mm-hmm. You know, I've often thought, you know, all right, at some point I'll graduate, you know, to this point where I don't go back at all. This sort of Allen Ginsberg right. idea, that, you know, that you just would could never possibly get any closer. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when I'm going to graduate to that point, I don't know. But it would be nice to not feel like you have to go back at all, mm-hmm. which was that was the point of that poem with mm-hmm. the uh, invisible ink. Like if I could just do my work every day without any intention of ever even reading what I've done or knowing what I've done. I have a feeling, I have a gut feeling mm-hmm. that down the line, that would be the best work. Yeah. You know, just right out of me. Right. Still and either. into space, into right. outer space, <laughs> you know, and then who gets to it, who discovers it someday, that none of my business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not for me to know. Yeah. So that would be pretty pretty wonderful if there was such a mechanism, which I'm sure would be pretty easy actually to to set up a situation yeah, where yeah. you don't look at your own work. But somehow in the poem, I decided it had to be ink. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea that I was writing freehand and everything was coming out onto a piece of paper, but in an ink that wasn't visible, right. but that would someday sort of, you know, have a chemical reaction or something. It's like the perfect way to be like, oh, I finally finished something, you know, and it's out and gone. Right, um, right. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is this desire to be read, to be noticed. Um, there are a few times it comes up in the book. One of the funniest and most thought-provoking and interesting ways is when you talk about Edward Snowden, and you're like, he had it all wrong. We want to be seen. We want to be eavesdropped on. We want oh, yeah. our are things to be read. And I don't know if you're talking specifically about poets who really, you know, there's one point in the book you're like, you know, sometimes I meet people who say they love my work, but it's like, prove to me you've read it, <laughs> you know, prove it, yeah. which is really the case. People say, oh yeah, you're, it's great. Right. Like, well, that was a bit of a me. sci-fi <laughs> poem. I, yeah. Um, you know, like uh, that Charlie Kaufman guy who, who yeah. wrote, you know, Invisible Mind. What's it? Eternal sunshine. Eternal sunshine. Something like that. Anyway, the idea of somehow reverse engineering or going going into the memory and erasing a part of the mind so that you don't have to deal with heartbreak, for example, um, which seems, in a way, that the, the point of my poem was that somehow the technology would be there to hook up the reader to a brain scan with all of this, like, 
color output of pixels and pink, yellow, orange, blue, and a sort of this neuroscience uh, situation to view the person's brain as they're reading my work Mm -hmm. and to look through this monitor and to decide, okay, I'm not seeing enough pink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to see some more orange in right. this person's brain, or, or I want to bring green in. How can I get the, that person's brain to go green? Right. And that somehow, okay, I'll work on the poem while the reader is hooked up to this machine right. until, and that, and that way I can craft the perfect poem. Yeah, yeah. Because it would have to actually be feeding back. I'd have to know in some way what is on the other end of that connection, yeah. that form of communication. I mean, it gets to, into Wittgenstein, this idea that, that no one's really quite having a pure experience with your language, uh-huh. you know, which is why Gertrude Stein wrote that line, you know, rose is a rose is a rose. Yeah. You know, this idea that, in fact, there isn't any objective baseline metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, where you can take those words and the pictures in your mind and your memory as you read those words are not going to be the same as what I'm intending mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. So it would be nice to say, okay, like with, you know, Led Zeppelin or whoever was up there playing the rain song or whatever, right. and everyone's going nuts. They kind of knew they were getting through mm-hmm. to people. They yeah. could see the visceral reaction in people to know yeah. that what they were doing in that music was having an effect. Yeah. So as a writer, you know, I'm sort of finding I want to know. I'm curious, yeah. you know, what the reader's thinking. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they... I'm just getting lonely. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's hear the guitars, please. In the There are different parts in the book where this kind of comes back. You're like, there's one where you're kind of walking down the street and you imagine there's all these people behind you and you turn around and you're like, there's not even a dog wagging the sail. It's like my wife and my daughter are somewhere else doing their own thing. It's like, I'm alone. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of loneliness in, in the work. There's no doubt about that. It's, uh, and, you know, I think, you know, that was one of the reasons my vibe was my vibe because originally I was thinking, well, there's only two categories that I'm aware of, at least, which is good vibes and bad vibes. Right. And I was thinking, you know, with Brian Wilson, right. you know, there was always this, this idea that it was good vibrations, but anyone who's listened closely to Pet Sounds you know damn well it's pretty bad vibration. Yeah. <laughs> and if, you, if you've listened to that, I think there's like 14 or 15 versions of that song out there on like some, uh-huh. some kind of experimental studio bootleg or something that, something that came out yeah. with, with the many versions of Good Vibrations. Yeah. And the, one after the next, they get weirder and more psychedelic and yeah. trippy and kind of, frankly, it's a bad trip. Yeah. So... And you can't listen to that album without getting bad vibes. <laughs> so I thought, well, is my work putting out bad vibes or good vibes? 
and I just decided, well, maybe I'll settle with my vibes, uh-huh. and then uh, that that's where the title kind of came from. Right, and the reader can determine if they're good vibes right. or it's bad up to, vibes. Yeah, I think that the loneliness, really the goal is to create an emotional, like a true emotional texture or mm-hmm. topography. I don't know what to call it, but but a true cross-section of who I am. Because mm-hmm. I really do, I am more interested in the idea of autobiography than ever before. And yeah. I really wanted this book to stand in for me and to be an authentic you know, version of myself mm-hmm. that people, you know, almost like a guidebook to self mm-hmm. you know, for the person who has eventually, who has either lost their mind or you know, the reader, you figure really meets the author or journeys into the author's mind through reading. So in a way, I want that level of intimacy and honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, that gets to the heart of it, really. It's not so much a vibe as much as a, um, a true manifestation of who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, that even though there's lots of distortion, as I was saying before, and stories that have gotten quite morphed from right. yeah. from my actual experiences i think that the the end result of the book is to is to try to present kind of even person uh-huh. like a balanced person like with many emotions right who's not just one thing or another yeah, yeah. so that's why i feel like one poem can be really mean really nasty yeah and then another one can be very sweet yeah and and to me you know, there was a danger at some point in realizing, well, what is the tone mm. of this whole book? You know, and should it? And then I realized, well, it has to have many tones. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's one where it's where that um, nasty and sweet is kind of in the same one where you you're in Soho and the postman almost like right. backs into you and you flip, <laughs> you give him the finger and he stops. He tries to pick a fight with you and whatever. And then two days later, you see him and. You just kind of approach him and shake his hand, and he kind of gives you this sort of, you know, shoulder bump man hug. Yeah, we sort of man hug. We have a little bro yeah. moment. But it's sort of like that's within the book from poem to poem, but even sometimes within the same story, it's it's there. Of like, right. I realized I was a dick. Or, yeah, or yeah. the other way, or, you know, someone says, why are you so nice or something. Well, I, I think, like, Jonas, my publisher, was, at, when he first read the book, concerned that there were too many politically incorrect mm-hmm. moments in the book and that, in fact, it might not be publishable. Like, yeah. there, might, there might be problems. Yeah, there's a few spots yeah. where you're like, Ugh. I tried to take a step back and really, you know, really question some, some of those spots and even consider making changes to to just make those areas work. You know, I didn't... My goal is not to offend people, and really, I don't want the reader to be turned off. I want the reader to find it a, a buoyant and pleasurable experience. Mm-hmm. So there were moments where I thought, mm, "No, this 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 should maybe some other time." Yeah, you know. So we did temper it in a few places, mm-hmm. you know, to try to control the rating a little. You know, right. in fact. When I read the work to Jonas, he immediately gave the book to his daughter, who's mm-hmm. I think maybe like 15, yeah. 14 or 15. And I thought, isn't she a little young? Yeah. And 
he's you know she she uh she really likes the work yeah. and i thought well that that's very telling cuz i really have to get out of this mindset of like my friends my world not not even our generation but our era our mm-hmm. time the, yeah. what's really important i think is that the next generation finds something in the work mm-hmm. and if it's a person who's sort of coming of age into the world and reading the work that's a good sign i'd rather someone who's younger find some interest in the book than just you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the only reader. Me and of you. This book. Yeah. No yeah. offense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to like <laughs> it too, Dave. But I, I really, I like the idea that a 14 year old girl would like it. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. that rock star fantasy. You know, it's like David Bowie. If you look at Pennebaker's film of Ziggy yeah. Stardust, you know the whole audience because Pennebaker's great at doing these pans through the audience with the strobe lights. Yeah, and showing the actual audience sort of freaking out. Yeah. That's what you Pre- want. <laughs> they're they're all they're all girls at a certain a certain age of girls that none of them look like David Bowie or Ziggy mm-hmm. Stardust. None of them act like him. There's, yeah. it's you'd think that there's a total disconnect, but yeah. they find something in this person to identify with. Yeah. So I don't know. It's yeah. not that I want fans so much as that. That like I was saying before, I want the work to have an effect, a larger effect than just my own personal gratification like i'm looking in the mirror and saying okay yeah well that's me right <laughs> yeah i mean that's the that's kind of the goal of a lot of it is to have to connect it with that reader in this case of you know who who is it going to connect to and the unknown reader yeah yeah, yeah. or the unknowable reader yeah you know, the fantasy is to be on the subway and to see someone reading your right. book, right? Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then the question is, is do you say to that person, hey, I'm, you're reading me? Yeah, that's my And the book. answer is no, leave them alone. Yeah, yeah. Just Don't interfere. It. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah watch just watch it. it. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. No, I've seen, I've seen people on the subway reading <laughs> my friend's books. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, I don't talk to them or whatever. Uh, I've never yeah. seen anyone reading one of my books. But <laughs> someday, someday so, you will, and when you do, it, yeah. you will have. You I'm just going to grab gotten. it and run and destroy it. <laughs> no. That has to be the ultimate fantasy of a, of a writer, right? What if you don't live in a place where there's a subway? Then you have to move. To <laughs> yeah. <a place> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about about your vibe, called my vibe, <laughs> but we should probably wind it down here. Sure. Uh, well, thank you. I've, I've been talking to Jeremy Sigler about my vibe on Clock Tower Radio. You, you have many more books to come. So uh, this one's cool. It's just out by Spoonbill. So thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Dave. All right. <laughs> well, let's hit real hard on that very last day flat after we're tasked in a second. Boom. Boom. Watch me on that part. Are we ready? Let's go. Stage five. Good vibration. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm backing up good vibrations. She's giving me the Yeah.
Softly smile, I know she must be kind 